and welcome to another episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and my guest today is author and activist, Michelle Reyes. As you'll hear in our conversation, Michelle is a woman who wears many hats and whose story is one that can both challenge and inspire each of us. Besides being a mom and a pastor's wife, Michelle is the vice president of the Asian American Christian Collaborative, the editorial director at PAX, and a scholar-in-residence at Hope Community Church, a minority-led multicultural church in East Austin, Texas. In our conversation today, Michelle shares her story of growing up as a second-generation Indian American in predominantly white spaces and the bullying and racism she experienced throughout her childhood. She talks about these hard chapters of her journey and how they propelled her desire to embrace her culture and help others do the same. Today, Michelle is deeply engaged with anti-racism work and has a passion for building lasting connections across cultures. We talk about some ways we can all do this, including making space for a multicultural Christmas this month as we celebrate the birth of Christ. So grab a cup of coffee and listen in as Michelle shares her story and message of the need for cross-cultural communities. All right, well, Michelle, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Andrea. Well, I am just really thrilled to talk to you today. As I said in uh, when we were talking before, now that I was going to wait to ask you on closer to when your book comes out, because you have a book coming out in April, but I just really felt like your passion and your purpose and the things that you that you lead others in is just really appropriate for where we're at right now in time. So I'm excited to talk to you today about all of that. So you you are somebody that is, you're engaged with anti-racist work and you're very passionate about, about building connections across cultures. And so we're gonna talk about that today, but before we do, can you just first share just a little bit about who you are in your day-to-day life, where you live and who you live with and that sort of thing? Yeah, definitely. So. I'm a second generation Indian American. I'm married to a second generation Mexican American. Uh, My husband, Aaron Reyes and I, we are church planters here in Austin, Texas. Austin is actually where my husband grew up, single single mom, government housing. uh, And it was always his heart to come back to his community to church plant. And so we are, our church is called Hope Community Church. We're a minority led multicultural church here on the east side. And um, uh, we're predominantly black and brown church, uh, just trying to be faithful uh, and, and pursue justice uh, in our in our context. So uh, pursuing vocational ministry, that's that's one of my hats. I'm also, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of an elusive term, but I'm a scholar in residence at our church, uh, which basically means that my my writing and my speaking dovetails with the work of the church. So um, my work serves the church and is used to highlight our, our, our church. Um, and beyond that, I wear a few other hats. Uh, I'm, I'm one of the co-founders and vice president of the Asian American Christian Collaborative, which was founded earlier this year. We put out um, a statement called a statement on anti-Asian racism in the time of COVID-19 back in March, which over the course of just a few weeks garnered over 10,000 signatures and became um, a national uh, speaking uh, or a point of, of national conversation, particularly within the church. Um, and along with that, I, I helped co-found a Christian nonprofit uh, called PAX, which is it's, it's seeking to promote the peace of Jesus in the 21st century and to, to really raise up uh, Gen Z and millennial Christians of colors to lead 
to lead us into a, a century that is centered on the peace of Jesus as we pursue justice and shalom. And so, you know, keeping busy this year. You're slightly <laughs> busy. I know when I was like writing down all your bio, I'm like, she has a lot of hats, this girl. You are definitely keeping busy and you have two little ones at home. Yeah, we are navigating homeschooling because of COVID. And uh, I have to admit of all the different things that I do throughout my day, my mornings, which is at the kitchen table doing homeschooling with my five-year-old and two-year-old is probably the, the sweetest part of the day. It's something I, I really have enjoyed and, and look forward to. Obviously, this is a impo- very hard year, but it's like if you can get your mind to cherish those times with your kids and homeschooling and know this isn't forever, like it does right. help, help <laughs> get around the hardness of it all. So, yeah. okay. So we'll get back into talking about PAX because PAX stands for peace. Is that correct? Yes. It's okay. Cause word for peace. Okay. Cause I was dig, I was on the website and I was digging for like, what, what does the PAX stand for? And I, and then I re- finally realized, I'm like, Oh, it is peace. So mm-hmm. there's so many resources on that website and we're going to dive in and talk about all of that a little bit later. But first, let's start with your story. I don't know your story, which makes me a little nervous because usually oftentimes my guests have written a book. So I'm like, I'm prepared. I know their story. I know questions to like prod along, but I don't know your story at all. So I am eager to learn it along with my listeners. So if you just want to start out, I just think it's really, it's important and interesting to hear how our origin stories really drive our passion and purpose. Mm -hmm. And I would love to hear that with with you. I mean, like you said, you're a second generation Indian American. And so start where you want with your childhood, with your parents, all of that. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'll do the the fast bio, which is that I was born in South Carolina and was born on an Air Force base in Sumter, South Carolina. My dad, he's now a commercial pilot for Delta, but he used to be, he used to fly F-16s in the Air Force. And uh, when I was two, we moved to Minnesota and that's where I grew up uh, in in a very Scandinavian uh, community in, in in Woodbury, Minnesota, which which translated to really um, my mom and myself and my my sister being the only brown skinned people that I knew of. My church, my school, my neighborhood growing up, these were all fair skinned, blonde haired, blue eyed yeah. people. Like like you couldn't be any more culturally different. Um, right. my, so my dad, he also actually has blonde hair, blue eyes. He's oh, of he okay. German uh, descent. And so, you know, I'm bicultural and I, I hold uh, those two very, very different cultures within my own person. And I know that conversations on culture can be complicated and, and people sometimes even wonder like, what, what is culture? What do you mean by culture and mixed ethnicity? And I simply like to talk about culture in terms of the narratives and expressions that we hold dear. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the way in which that um, anthropology professor, Dr. Brian Howell at Wheaton College talks about culture, which is this at the core of each of our cultural identities is a set of stories that guide us mm-hmm. in our life and help us determine what we consider as true and good and beautiful in the world. Um, and culture as narrative, I think is extremely important for us today, both in terms of each of us understanding how God created us with our, with our own unique cultural identities, but also for cross-cultural relationships. Um, I think sometimes when people talk about culture simply as what we can create and cultivate in the world, um, we can begin to create these systems of hierarchies where we, we, we pit different ethnicities against each other. Right, so right. all that to say, um, 
I carry these different cultural narratives within my, my own self. My mom, she's part of the Indian diaspora. So she did not, she wasn't born in India. She actually was born and raised in an Indian village in Uganda, Africa. Oh, and wow. She, okay. Her great, great grandparents were brought there as forced laborers by the British empire wow. to build the railroad in Uganda. And, you know, as it goes, they stayed there long enough to have families and, and, and build roots and, and, and settle down. And so um, she was raised there, you know, so she not only speaks Gujarati because her family is from originally from the state of Gujarat um, and Hindi, but also Swahili. Uh, and so those languages were all in our home growing up. Um, but then, uh, you know, if you know the history of Uganda in the 60s with President Idi Amin mm -hmm. waged genocide against the Indians and other minorities, um, her, her family fled literally with just the clothes on their back okay. um, to go to England. And my mom went to college in India, then came to the U.S. for work uh, in the 70s. You know, she was part of that big immigration wave in the 70s. Um, but, you know, my dad, his heritage can be traced all the way back to pilgrims on the Mayflower, yeah. uh, you know, and, and, and so I was also part of the society or am, I guess, still part of the society of daughters of the American revolution. Like I can trace my heritage yeah. there as yeah. well. And so um, it is just this fascinating. It really <laughs> is. I mean, I'm glad that's, I had no idea that part of like with your father's ancestry, the both sides that came together. That's fascinating. So when growing up, did your mom talk a lot about her culture and identity in Uganda? Do you remember as a child hearing about that? For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's come in different ways. And by that, I mean, when my mom, my, so my mom grew up Hindu and when she came to the States, she was still a Hindu. She didn't convert to Christianity until she met my dad. And so that was a big cataclysmic moment in her life because her family disowned her for that reason. So I still haven't met the majority of my mom's family. But in those early years, as my mom really wanted to cement her Christian faith and really like show that she was distancing herself from Hinduism, it also meant when we were in early elementary age, not celebrating much of Indian culture and, and Indian yeah. holidays outside of, of course, we ate Indian food, you know, growing up. That was, that was the staple. I grew up cooking Indian food uh, in the kitchen with my mom. And of course, she'd be speaking to us in Gujarati and Hindi. And so those languages were preserved as well as Indian values, right? Like I on the weekends, I did homework, right? And I wasn't yeah. allowed to talk to boys. And, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, we, we, we didn't get to what we weren't allowed to watch TV, like, all, all these very, very traditional Indian values were still part of the home. So it's, it's a mix. Um, For sure. But that is huge, though, her dropping that part of her culture and background not and becoming a Christian so as far as faith in your home do you remember like the faith journey and the role that played kind of in shaping your childhood was Christianity a big part of it absolutely yeah I mean I I say I was born and raised in a Christian home yeah, you know yeah. and and my story is one of those typical stories where I think when I was four because we, we attended a Northern Baptist church in Minnesota. And okay. I think I was about four when I was in Sunday school at church and accepted Jesus into my heart. And so, yeah. and, and obviously as I grew older, faith became more and more my, my own. But in Indian culture, it's, it's very traditional for Hindus to rise up early, to get out of bed and on your knees 
be in prayer to the gods. And so my mom carried that practice over, but as a Christian praying to the one true God. And so every morning growing up throughout elementary and high school, by the time I got up, showered, got dressed, came downstairs, I would always see my mom on her knees in prayer. Um, And and so that was something that was just passed down to me about committing to to, to reading scripture and prayer daily in a very Indian kind of way. And then also from a very, very early age, my mom would read both the Bible to us and Indian folklore. And so I've grown up reading both in many ways side by side and seeing the ways in which Indian folk tales illustrate beautiful concepts of the Bible. And so Indian folklore is also very dear to my heart. Going back a little bit, you you shared that you were one of the only brown skin girls families in, you know, Lily White, Minnesota. So do you recall noticing that as a young age did you and were you able to embrace your brown skin or did you feel different or left out if you don't mind sharing a little bit of that part of your story for sure yeah you know I (laughs) uh uh, to to try to be brief um there's you don't have to be you don't have to be brief with (laughs) share as much or you little as you want because I really think that I mean our childhoods gosh they impact who are becoming so much mm-hmm. and are, I'm just always fascinated to hear about awareness of that at young age and how that starts shaping things. Yeah. You know, I, I, and I was saying to be brief, just because there, there is a long, it's a long story of, of, of racial pain uh, and racial shaming that I experienced as a child. And, you know, when I was a kid, I probably couldn't explain. I don't think I could have explained to you as like an eight-year-old or 10-year-old, that the type of bullying I was experiencing was racial bullying. You know what I mean? Like I just thought, I must be super uncool <laughs> and that I wasn't pretty uh, and that I didn't wear cool clothes because I didn't, you know, um, yeah. my, my family was very thrifty and we, I never owned name brand clothes. And so I just assumed that the reason why nobody sat at the lunch table with me or the reason why nobody wanted to be my friend or the reason why people made fun of the way I looked was because I just happened to be uncool. And it wasn't until after college that I look back at those experiences and it was after college that I was really beginning to learn how to lean into my own cultural identity and develop that in a more robust theological way that I realized this was my, my, and and I don't say white in like a judgmental way, but my very white classmates not knowing what to do with me with my brown skin and my homemade Indian food. uh, And the fact that I used to wear saris and other sort of special Indian dresses for holidays or Christmas. And so, yeah, I mean, it was very much apparent to me that I was different and yeah. my, my classmates made that very clear. I just didn't understand till much older that ethnicity and culture was, yeah. was playing a big role in that. And I just having children, you too, it's like, I just, it's hard enough to grow up being a kid and it's like to have that extra on you. And again, it just... It always, blo- I mean, I feel like I've probably have lived in a bubble because it always blows my mind how cruel children can be. Yeah. But when you're sharing this, it it totally makes a lot of sense of why you are passionate now about your cultural, uh, multicultural identity and <laughs> incorporating these. And as a Christian, as a believer, like why it's important to do this. I mean, would you say that your passion stems a lot from your childhood, what you experienced where that wasn't going on? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And I think um, 
from a very young age, I came to dislike bullies (laughs) (laughs) because I had experienced so much bullying. And so, you know, even if a guy was so much bigger or stronger than me, if I saw somebody being bullied, I felt, I don't want to over-spiritualize it, but I felt like I had this righteous anger (laughs) to like, protect the 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 weak and the oppressed because I I knew so personally what it feels like to to go through that and so I mean yes much of that has fueled my 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 passion my commitment my pursuit of of justice today and I think I think that the majority of activists who are on the streets pursuing injustice is because they have experienced injustice so personally it's just like fueled this passion in them to break those those cycles and so you know and my my husband's story is 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 very similar and so we share that common vision uh, in our own lives in our community and uh, of course in our church of how to break cycles of oppression and injustice uh, for all of our neighbors you mentioned a church that you guys you and your husband planted church planted that is a multicultural church or primarily that was probably why also I'm assuming that you had that passion to tell me a little bit, like at what point in your story did you start realizing like this, this is what I was created to do was to (laughs) like, I don't know your path of, did you have other things that you were steering towards and you just felt like God was leading you towards this way of his purpose for you? Yeah. So good. Um, so yes, actually. Okay. See, this is where I have, and I haven't read people's books. I'm like, I have no idea what she's going to say. Okay. I know. And I did, I did not include this in my bio. So this is, this is all new information. Okay. I apologize for that, but I don't you know, know. I want to know. I, I originally began my professional development in the Academy. So I have a PhD in 18th century German literature. You do. <laughs> and I used to wow. teach folklore, uh, so when my husband and I, when we lived up in Chicago, I taught at the University of Illinois, Chicago, as well as Moody Bible Institute. And then okay. uh, when we came down to Texas, I taught at a local uh, university here in Austin, uh, teaching German, Italian, French folklore, feminist folklore, you know, wow. like uh, the whole gamut, uh, okay. including Asian folklore too. And so um, this, this passion and, and love that I've had since a child has <laughs> become yeah. part of uh, my own pre- pre- professional development. And, you know, it's interesting if, if I was to sum up folklore, I mean, as the name entails, these are tales of the folk. These are tales of, of peasants, of the uh-huh. poorest people in the land. And these tales are all about their oppression, their, the abuses they experienced, and even things just like hunger and poverty and, you know, death of a child. Um, and and it's, it's, it's their way of figuring out how to survive, but also in so many instances experiencing injustice. And the way that justice is executed is by these peasants learning how to raise their voice particularly women you know who have had horrible abuses against their own personhood and 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 life and justice is brought about by the community when the woman learns how to how to speak her own story into existence and so that idea of narrative justice even though I don't teach folklore in the academy today, that concept of narrative justice is something that I've brought into vocational ministry in, 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 in helping elevate 
the stories and voices of immigrants, of um, those who are falsely incarcerated, um, of, of the poor in our, in our neighborhoods as, as part of how we actually engender justice for them. Yeah, I love that. Like that is, that's very cool. I'm glad. Thank you for sharing that. And I feel like from what I've looked at and learned about PACS is that's a big part of that organization, the narratives, the peace promoting, um, the storytelling. Do you mind sharing just a little bit about, because I think that's an important part of who you are, about PACS and your role and how that got started? Definitely. Yeah. So PACS, our, our bread and butter is this thing that we call the story arc. And the story arc is this um, online magazine, if you will, where we sit in one topic for about four months and we just really allow for a slow uh, Jesus-centered discipleship uh, model, if you will. And we're trying to counter this very fast food a la carte type style uh, spirituality that we can have today where, you know, oh, I'm, I want to learn about this today. So I go to a website, I read an article, kind of check it off my list and go on with my life. And we're, we're trying to invite um, people into an experience where they're really um, engaging with, with a topic, heart, uh, mind, and, and body. Um, and not only that, but we're trying to wrestle with the biggest topics that, that, that young people are wrestling with today and having Christians of color lead the conversation in terms of like, let's talk about Jesus. Let's, let's talk about what the Bible says about these things, but in a way that is, um, is, is, is not what you would hear from the dominant culture, which is important, I think, because a lot of young Christians of color today are wrestling with, you know, where do I fit in? What, where is my space? How, How come nobody around me thinks like me? How come, how come uh, I'm so misunderstood? <laughs> Am I crazy? And right. to have Christians of color saying, no, your, your cultural identity and your cultural lens of, of experiencing the world and your understanding of scripture is important and there's space for you here. And so um, we've, we've done one story arc on, uh, on peace in general. What is yeah. peace? What does it mean to have peace with God, peace with ourselves, peace with others? Uh, we're just finishing a story arc on cultural identity, uh, and we have some super exciting ones coming out next year as, okay. as as well. Okay, and we will put the link to that because there is so much to dive into there. Like, I couldn't believe all the layers of it that you all provide in the resources. And like you said, right now it's about peace, but PAX also is Latin for peace. And your purpose is to promote the peace of Jesus in the 21st century. And a big part of that is exploring cultures and stories. One of the things I read on there, it says the story of God has always worked through peoples and cultures and unique stories, not in spite of them. Mm -hmm. And that kind of, I mean, it doesn't kind of, it does relate to, again, your passion for the multicultural approach to things. And as we as Christians celebrating our cultures and not having it as a separate piece. So that kind of leads into let's, even though I haven't read it, which again, makes me nervous because I read all my guest books, but (laughs) your book that's coming out in April, because that ties in as well. So would you mind sharing just a little bit about 
your book and the premise of it and just some of the some of the passion that you share in it. The book is called Becoming All Things: How Small Changes Lead to Lasting Connections Across Cultures. Yeah. So first tell me why you decided to write that book and then tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, definitely. Um you know, I think oftentimes we write books based on the conversations we're having, right? And the and the things that people are asking us about and there was two big questions that I had been wrestling with in my own life and that I've been having just conversation after conversation with friends and community members alike both majority and minority and they were both like how do i how do i lean into and develop my own cultural identity mm-hmm. and how do i do cross cultural relationships well <laughs> You know, I think those are two really big conversations right. that a lot of people are wrestling with. And even more so this year in the year 2020, uh, because of everything that's happened with George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, uh, anti-Asian racism, culture and race has risen to the forefront of almost right. everybody's racial consciousness. And we're realizing we need to do better, but we don't know where to start. And so this book is in many ways a sort of 101. <laughs> Here's where you start. And I, the premise of my book is the passage in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. And to summarize it, Paul basically says, to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Greek, I became a Greek. I became all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. And the question that I'm asking is, what does it mean to become all things to all people? Because if, if Paul was speaking to us today, I'm sure he would say something like, to the Latino, I became a Latino. To the African-American, I became an African-American. What does that even mean? Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And so it's a how-to book of before we learn to adapt to other people's cultures, we have to understand our own. We have to develop our own cultural identity, understand who God made us to be, recognize certainly there's there's idols and sins in each of our cultures, but also much to celebrate. So how do we center that in terms of our, our identity? And then the second part is how do we learn how to step outside of our culture to connect with people of other cultures as, as well? I printed that verse off because just reading a little bit about the book, I you know didn't know, know offhand what First Corinthians nine nineteen through twenty three said, and I was I feel like in the past I've always skimmed over that. And you really, I mean, if we really look at that, it, it is like what is Paul asking us here to do or saying that he does? And that's just, I love your take on that, and I really am looking forward to reading your book and how to do that. Mm -hmm. One of the things I'm going to ask, because it says in just the information about your book, it says you focus on the concept of cultural accommodation. So I was having a conversation with my daughter before we talked, because we've had a lot of of conversations, especially this year, um, about cultural appropriation. You know, we just had Halloween a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. So we hopefully are aware what cultural appropriation is. And in reading your Christmas article, I was talking to her, well, tell me, you know, what you think the difference is between cultural appropriation, cultural appreciation, and cultural accommodation. So do you mind giving us a little, for people that don't know, maybe a lesson? Because I feel like that's kind of important when we talk about, in a little bit, what you wrote about Christmas and appreciating the other cultures and learning about. So again, will you just start off giving us kind of a definition? I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this, but are you prepared to give us a little? Okay. 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 So if you don't 
don't mind just clarifying these, you can start whichever one, cultural appreciation, appropriation, or accommodation. Yeah, definitely. Well, I have to go back first to that definition of culture and cultural identity, namely as are these unique individual narratives and expressions that we hold dear. And this is this is sort of a new vein of scholarship within cultural studies and anthropology studies, because I'm basically arguing that we are not defined by by groups, that culture should be understood at an individual level. And I think most of us would agree to this. If you if you lined up 10 white people, or if you lined up 10 Indians, we would all be vastly different. Like just because we're all Indian doesn't mean we're exactly the same. Uh, Or the same could be true of 10 Latinos, you know, um, or 10 African Americans. And so uh, we share things with an ethnic group, but we are also, because we live in a global multicultural society and and transnational society, like for myself, I'm second generation Indian American. I I hold part of my mom's narrative within me, but also part of my dad's. I'm this embodiment of very different worlds. And my story is so different from somebody who was born and raised in India. You know what I mean? So when we understand culture in that light about people's stories, their narratives, their expressions, how they see the world, this is no longer about dress and food and decorations in your house. I mean, like those expressions come out of our, our narratives, but that's just the external representation of of something that's um, deeply with inside us. So when you talk about cultural appreciation, (laughs) this isn't about saying, oh, I really like tacos. (laughs) Right. Or, um, oh, I just really love celebrating uh, that Indian holiday, holy, where people throw paint at each other (laughs) or or something like cultural appreciation is seeing a person of a different culture and valuing their story and valuing their narrative. It's appreciating the person. Yeah, I (laughs) love that. Not some food or clothing item, if you will. That's that's what true cultural appreciation is. Um, Cultural accommodation then is saying, okay, I am going to intentionally make space so that different stories of different peoples and cultures all are equally represented at the table. They're all equally valued. They're all equally respected. That's what cultural accommodation means. It means being willing to to take yourself out of the center (laughs) and say, I'm making space for you. And I'm not going to see your story and your way of life as as less than mine or judge it or or send to it in some way, right? Cultural accommodation, this is the trickier or appropriation or cultural appropriation. Okay, yes, yes. That's, I know they're all the A's. Okay. Yeah, too many A's. Yes. <laughs> um, because you know, this is the, the challenge of how do we how do we adapt for other people, reach out to other people, step into their cultures um without w- without just taking, stealing, and, and using it for our own benefit, right? right this right. is actually where I go back to First Corinthians. Um, both in chapter, I think in chapter one and also in chapter 10, where Paul says everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial, right? And so, um, you know, there's no law biblically or, you know, American law that says you shouldn't buy a teepee from Target for your kid, (laughs) or there's no law that says you can't, uh, eat sushi for lunch if you're not, uh, you know, Asian or something like this. But the question is, who benefits? Who financially benefits? Who benefits in terms of representation? Because, you know, if 
if your understanding of culture is drinking chai from Starbucks and buying, you know, hundred dollar cardigans with like Native American designs from anthropology, yeah. you're not benefiting <laughs> East mm -hmm. Indian and Native American right. communities. So this is about how do you support real locals, real ethnic shops, um, you know, I think in many ways, cultural appropriation, the bottom line is what's happening financially, who is betting, benefiting financially from it. So, um, you know, it's great if you love tacos, but don't buy your taco, don't buy that one taco from some hipster joint that costs $5. Yeah. Go to that trailer, buy a Mexican couple uh, who's yeah. making real Mexican tacos yeah. and, and give your money to them. Yeah, that's really good. I appreciate those definitions. I think that helps that helps a lot because I think generally we know, but it's so much, it's so much deeper than mm -hmm. just, you know, not wearing a certain costume or those sort of things. So thank you for that. So let's go back. I think that leads as well into making space for a multicultural Christmas, because like you said, with a cultural accommodation, that is making space, not centering your own way of doing things, which white evangelical church in America seems like that's what we've done for Christmas. You recently wrote an article that caught my attention and kind of what made me, well, it really is what made me want to get a hold of you to talk today. The title of your article was Making Space for Multicultural Christmas. And the first line, you say the story of Christmas takes place in the first century, and not a single character is Caucasian. Yet the American evangelical celebration of Christmas can have a distinctly vanilla flavor. So you go on to talk about white baby Jesus, holiday feasts that are these European, all these things. And it's true. And there's a time in my life I'd never thought twice about it. But you have so many good points of why we need to make space and how we do that. So do you want to just dive into talking about, first of all, why we need to make space for that? I mean, I know, I hope people do, but I mean, there's a lot to it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing because that opening line. I, made, <laughs> I love it. I made a few new friends and I made a few new enemies. <laughs> <laughs> well, you made a new friend here, even as a white person, because I'm like, it's so true. How have we been just so selfish? Yeah. <sighs> yeah. yeah. Well, I'll, I'll make two comments. The first is about um, cultural expression. And then the second is about our actual reading of um, the Christmas story in, 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 in scripture. And so okay. in terms of cultural expression, you know, um, celebrating Christmas as a kid always made me feel <laughs> more American <laughs> because oh, there was something about buying a tree and having stockings and um, candle lights in the windows. It was like the time of year that I felt most connected with my non-Indian classmates ah, and, and yeah. neighbors because it was, the one time of the year that we were living our lives in almost similar yeah. ways, you know, and um, my, I think in many ways, my mom, you know, growing up Hindu, not growing up in the US, but coming here, marrying a white American, celebrating Christmas with the, the big American feast and, and um, wearing, you know, fancy red American dresses on Christmas day was like, part of how she tried to assimilate, yeah. you know what I mean? And, and to like encourage us to assimilate. It was like us celebrating Christmas in a distinctly white American way was how we said we, we belong here, right? And then of course, there's everything else that comes with that. Making the cookies, watching the Hallmark movies, feeling this Christmas spirit and the secret right. Santa parties. And right. 
You know, I, it was again after college and, and my husband and I got married and we were both on this journey of cultural identity development together. And we were like, like why do we do all those things? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I don't know if I even like Hallmark movies. No, no shade to them because I have a lot of right. friends that love Hallmark movies. Yeah, and I'm like, all what, right. what all is right. happening here? Right. And it was when I started asking the question, like, could I celebrate Christmas in a distinctly Indian American way? Yeah. Is there another way to celebrate a celebrate? the birth of Jesus. And, and so in many ways, I'm asking myself even now, how can I celebrate the birth of Jesus in ways that are authentic and meaningful to who I am as a cultural being? And, and how can I celebrate Christmas in ways that incorporate my whole self, including my cultural identity? And so, I mean, part of that is being more comfortable with uh, having an Indian feast for, for Christmas day or wearing a more traditional Indian clothing or um, playing more distinctly Indian or Asian Christmas songs, you know, so that's part of it. But then I think the second is just reevaluating when I sit down and read Luke 2, or when my husband and I sit down and read, you know, or Matthew 1 or, 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 or other passages which chronicle the birth of Jesus, that our cultural lens brings in a different perspective, you know, and a lot of what I was taught about the Christmas story growing up how do I say this? Like, I, I value what my Swedish Bible teachers taught me, (laughs) you know, like they have a unique cultural lens too. And this is not about throwing white people under the bus because white people all have an ethnic heritage. You know, they came from somewhere. They're either Swedish or German or Irish or fill in the blank. And God gave them a beautiful cultural identity to express their faith and to celebrate things like Christmas. And so I can learn a lot from them uh, as, as well. But, you know, we can learn a lot from each other. Part of what I was trying to get at in this article was how could we as cultural beings do better to sit down communally, perhaps virtually this year because of COVID, read the story of Jesus's birth together and say, what's sticking out to you? How is this hitting you? You know, because when I read it, I don't read the story of Jesus's birth in an individualistic way. It's a very communal, uh, the, like the communal elements of, of Jesus and Mary going to a relative's home and it being so full that Mary has to give birth in that portion of the house where the animals are like I just imagine there being aunts and uncles everywhere uh and and um you know even uh the 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 gift giving of from 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 the magi you know and this it's a communal gift giving this whole group of people come to give presents to a whole family um and in Indian culture we do this right we don't give presents just to one individual we give presents from one family to another family, you know? And so um, in many ways, my understanding of of Christmas because of reading Luke 2 is to celebrate it communally and to do gift giving communally. So all all of that impacts each other, right? And so if we can make space, not to say we're like, oh, there's different hermeneutics and exegesis going on here, you know, Like, like this isn't about heresy. This is about just saying, oh, God is speaking to you in a unique way through your culture, and I can learn from you and vice versa. I think um, this this would do so much beauty and good for for multicultural communities and cross-cultural relationships. For sure. I mean, just you ex- explaining your view of it and the things that you do to bring in your Indian culture. I mean, how rich would that be if we really, as believers, incorporated all these cultures and narratives into 
expressing, but celebrating the birth of Jesus. I mean, that would be incredible. And so in that, one of the quotes that stuck out, it said, when we read the Bible together in a multicultural community, believers from differing cultures help us see things in scripture we tend to miss due to our own blind spots. And that's kind of what you just talked about. And not only with the Christmas story, but all throughout scripture, imagine if we did that and made space. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, tangibly making that space, how how do we do that? Is it the responsibility of the churches, individual families? Like, give us some real tangible ideas. And also, I mean, you know, you, I assume, are, are incorporating that with your own family, right? Um, you've got Mexican heritage, Latino, Indian, yeah. German. Um, so I guess just give us ideas for how, what ways, how, we, how do we do this? Yeah, no, that's, that's really good. Uh, well, I think... I think it is a good challenge for the church to make space for these sorts of communal gatherings. You know, there's, there's so many things we should be doing communally. Like we sh- there should be gatherings for communal prayer. There should be gatherings for communal lament. And there should be gatherings for communal readings of scripture. And I yeah. think um, how amazing would it be if churches uh, were, were intentionally cultivating these spaces, um, you know, and, and even in a Christmas Eve service or an Advent service bringing up three different people of three different cultures and and discussing you know Mm -hmm. Luke 2 for Mm -hmm. example but I think we can also do this on an individual level you know call up our friends or a neighbor or you know maybe it's even our spouse right so many of us are married to somebody of a different culture and say hey let's sit down and read this again together aloud and just ask each other what sticks out to you what what resonates with your cultural background or your ethnic roots and hear what people say. So there's, there's that, um, you know, something I'm encouraging people is to consider, um, you know, if they want to perhaps learn from Indian culture, consider doing communal gift giving as opposed to individual gift giving. What, what would it look like to give a present to a family, like from my family to yours? Something else I didn't mention is that in Eastern cultures, the star of Bethlehem is probably <laughs> the star of the show. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and, 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 you know, in India, even in the slums, you see people making paper stars and hanging them from tent to tent. Mm. Um, and, and Diwali was just a few weeks ago. It's probably the biggest holiday in the, in the Indian calendar, but it's all about light having victory over darkness. And I think Indians and Asian Eastern cultures are, are drawn to this vision of light versus darkness, mm-hmm. right? And, 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 and really valuing and embracing Jesus as the light of the world. And so, so much of our celebration of Christmas is Jesus as the light coming into the, yeah. into the world. So you think about that in contrast to Western cultures where the, the Christmas tree takes center stage, right? Yeah. And I, not to say that you need to throw out your Christmas tree, <laughs> but what, what would it look like to also make space for I don't know, sit down with your kids and make paper stars and, yeah. and talk about Jesus as the light and Advent is all about waiting and the coming of Christ and, and, and celebrating that more than, I think oftentimes in the West, we talk about um, the gift giving and, and, and Jesus, the, the Magi's gifts and Jesus as the gift to the world. And so we give each other gifts but I think just pointing more to Christ and being yeah. more selfless yeah. <laughs> I think would do us well. 
For sure. I mean, we're missing so much. I mean, even in your article where you talk about some of the other traditions of other countries, it's like, I had no idea of these things. I mean, we're missing so much, especially me as a white woman brought up in this very American culture. It's like always just like you said, gifts, Christmas tree, Santa Claus, a big, big meal. And it's, there's so many other things and it's like wanting to do better for the next generation of, of teaching our children these new traditions and new mm-hmm. ways of thinking, I think is just one powerful piece we as parents have to mm-hmm. start to start making that change, kind of like packs, like a gradual change, but <laughs> hopefully <laughs> the ripple effect with our kids. Yeah. And, and so, add Andrea, just one yeah, thing. If, absolutely, you can you can Google this, um, but part of bringing in Mexican American um, culture and tradition into our celebration of Christmas, there's a there's a Mexican Christmas story called The Legend of the Red Poinsettias. Okay. And it is the most beautiful story I have oh. ever heard in my life. I mean, it's very folkloric, right? Yeah. But, um, and not not to give it away too much, but it's, it's a story of a poor Mexican girl and her grandmother. Uh, and it's Christmas Day. And the grandmother is so... Uh, frail she can't even get out of bed to go to church so the little girl goes to church by herself and she sees everybody bringing in beautiful gifts to lay down the front of the church as sort of gifts for for baby Jesus and she has nothing because she's in dire poverty and she uh, she basically at first is sitting down and crying and feeling very ashamed Uh, and as she's sitting down she realizes she's sitting on some weeds and she picks up the weeds and brings the weeds into the church as like the most humble offering. Mm. And I won't spoil the ending, but a miracle takes place. Okay. Uh, and the whole point is that, you know, the simplest gift out of an act of love is more important than the big fancy gifts that everybody else was, was giving. And we've been reading that story over and over to our children this month in particular. Oh, I love and I feel like they've really embraced that the Christmas is not about big gifts, you yeah. know, it's about yeah. our love for Jesus. So the legend of the red point said is it's a okay. very special story. Okay. I'm going to look that up and we will see if we can link it up. If we can find a version of that that's good. But I appreciate you just sharing that because there's so much we don't know. And as you're saying that, it occurs to me there is there's work, especially as a white mom. It's like these stories aren't just going to what's readily available because we have yet to make that space in our culture Mm -hmm. for these new stories and narratives. So there is work to do to search for these things and to read and find them to share with our kids. How rich would it be if we if we all started learning and making space, like you said. And we will definitely link this article up because you you just so eloquently talk about the other different cultures, different identities, and the importance of doing this. We'll link up where you can be found with PACS as well. Do you want to tell us, tell us the other information just about when your book releases? Do you have a website? Tell yeah, us all of that. Yeah. So, you know, you can find me at michelleamireyes.com. The website is finished. I'm currently working on a free PDF that people can download. Basically, four steps to connecting across cultures, even when it's uncomfortable. Okay. Uh, so that's a, that's a resource that I'm going to be offering soon as a free download. Um, okay. We'd love for people to check that out, uh, michellemireyes.com. And then my book comes out April 27th of okay. next year. And um, yeah, I mean, besides that, of course, you can find me in all the regular places on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, right. and right. Uh, always love to chat with people about these things. Okay. And we'll put links to all of that. And I do encourage people to check out the PAX website, your website, also your Instagram. You have link, cause you do a lot of collaborative work. And so 
we will put links where people can find you at all those places. Michelle, thank you so much. Oh, I appreciate so it. Great. Thank you, Andrea. Yeah, thank you. You too. As always, the resources mentioned in this episode are at the show notes at herstoryspeaks.com. Michelle's forthcoming book, Becoming All Things, How Small Changes Lead to Lasting Connections Across Cultures, doesn't release until April, but can be pre-ordered now. I've also included a couple bonus links in the show notes, such as a link to purchase the children's book, The Legend of the Poinsettia, that Michelle mentioned, as well as two articles Michelle has written on making space for a multicultural Christmas and ideas for your own family.